Welcome back to part two of the Tom Ricky episode. I'm not going to go on anymore. We're just going to go straight back into it because why not? You probably know the name Jim Mers. Jim Mers. I don't actually. Who's who's give him some context? So Jim Mers was a frame builder in a similar vintage, a similar era in Portland, Oregon. That later later on went to work for Specialized, along along with. Um, his uh, his friend uh, Danucci, Mark Danucci. So Mers and Danucci came down from Oregon to work for Mike about this time when mountain bikes was happening, and they they helped him build some of his first mountain bikes. Mers got a hold of a bike that I built in 1975 for a family friend, Sam Hopkins, and he restored it. And he's been in touch. He was in touch with me for the restoring process. I'd built a bike previous to that for my dad that was the same. And if you look at the bike technology-wise, it's got all the tricks that I'm talking about that I put into it in 1974 and then Sam's, Sam Hopkins in 75. You can interview Murs because he's, he's a good interview. Um, but he said, it that, he said just to me recently is that it was the state of the art. No one. There was no titanium bike. There was titanium bikes around, Teledyne. With, with every part that you could put in, put on it, my dad's bike, Sam's bike, was a pound lighter than anything he's ever seen. So I was playing in a different kind of play yard before mountain bikes. And so the things that a mountain bike required that were unique were things that I had already done. Seat posts, handlebars, bottom brackets hubs, all those components I would already built many years prior. And so the mountain bike was known as a frame, but actually it needed special components. And no one had those special components. Until you came along. And that, and that's the, that's the thing, because it's that contribution back then that made the sport because it had to have the tools and you touched upon some of those elements there but the list of things that you've contributed is overwhelming so wider bottom brackets in the first place up to 120 mil just so that you could widen the stays and get bigger tires in there folding bead tires for mountain bike and different mountain bike treads Um, and then probably the most yeah, the thing that will stick in most people's minds now, because it's touted in the press almost like a new technology, is 650B. But 650B wheels, you were messing around with in the 70s, whereas now we're told they're the height of fashion for a gravel bike. I mean, you know where the first 650Bs came from? Where's that? They came from Mike Sinyard importing them from Japan from Mitsuboshi. Wow. And Mike Sinyard being Mike Sinyard of Specialized. Yeah. So... Mitsuboshi was already making that tire. Mike didn't design a tire. He put a patch that was already existing on a tire design that the Japanese were riding around off-road. The whole 650B thing was Japanese. Really? The Japanese had the rough stuff just at the same time that anyone else had it. They were previous to anything that I know about. There were there was there was magazines that were just that were that that were shown me later about the Japanese and their rough stuff kind of fellowship. I don't know what they called themselves at the time, 
but I just, I just knew that they existed. And those tires came from Japan. And the second generation of tires that I used in 1979 uh, and 80 came from Hakka in Finland. And they were available with or without, with or without um, snow, snow snuds. Oh, really? The, the metal studs in the tires? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And they were folding. The Japanese weren't folding. The Hakas were folding. Right. There was 650s that were off-road for, I don't know when the history of the beginning of the first 650 was, but it's 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 just like whether it be Africa and the 680 or the 650 or the 700, it was all these all these things probably pre-existed by by decades for other purposes and use. So what do you what do you think when you see a gravel bike now from Company X, the latest and greatest gravel bike? A wry smile or a, oh that's interesting. I wish we could have done that back in the day. What's how do they make you feel? I suppose. Well, you know, if you if you're a student of history and you realize that forty years is a pretty normal cycle for things to play themselves out, if you're a student of history. So generations are typically 40 years. History usually cycles about that time. So it's not, an, it, it was very obvious to me that when people started getting excited about gravel bikes, they were excited about it because it solved a problem. It's like we were in a world <clears throat> that if you wanted to ride a bike, you had to ride a bike that was based on an evolutionary marketing process that produced failed efforts that was coming back on itself now 40 or 50 years later. First of all, you have to have that experience. And how many people my age, 64 years old, are going to have all this kind of tucked away in their, in their memory? Not too many, unfortunately, you know. And so sadly that you have to recognize things when they come back because there's, there's a reason for them. It's all just basically meeting a need and, and solving a problem. And, and so you got to the point that the mountain bike was so sophisticated, so burdened with so much technology and the road bike was kind of in the same category burdened with so much technology that you had to uh, have a trailer carrying your mechanic everywhere you went. Yeah. With, 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 with stuff like, you know, stem suspension or drop a seat post. <laughs> that people, <laughs> that people just said enough. The Eroica was starting to gain popularity. People were starting to celebrate, kind of just cycling for fun off road, and boom, it was it just was happening. It just was meant to happen. Now, now we've got to go through probably another forty years of people realizing the discovery of certain things that unfortunately aren't discovered yet. And so there's very few students that are going to know what they're looking at when they look at a steel off-road bike. They're not going to understand it. They're going to think, you know, if you knew the underbelly of the beast, like I do in terms of the, in terms of the, um, the new way that the industry is manipulated by the, uh, the, the, the UCI testing machine standards and how, how uneducated that is. 
and how wrongheaded that is, you would realize that there you cannot sell certain things. There is no market other than a custom builder making certain things on his own, taking his own liability insurance on his own shoulders and making it for a customer. You cannot sell into the global marketplace a lot of the things that work work really well because testing standards have changed the rules of trade. And no one knows this. This is the true, I can't make, even if I designed and I did design a better steel fork for the modern bicycle, no one could buy it. Why is that? Because it wouldn't pass the perceived safety. Because it wouldn't pass the onerous perceived safety standards that was established in the early 2000s based on the failure of multi-piece carbon fiber standards that were established. So when carbon fiber started blowing up and people started dying and front ends of bikes started started causing a, a, a ripple effect through the testing standards in the world, they came along and basically said, you need to pass this standard and a steel fork would never pass that standard. It's, it's like you, you say that it's very similar. We've spoken about this before with other people in the bike industry is, for instance, say the UCI minimum weight, which it's now proven that that minimum weight is not no longer to do with safety bikes. There are countless bikes that are way below that 6.8 kilograms that are perfectly safe, if not safer than heavier bikes. But it's like you're saying it's the unwillingness for, for change and for acceptance of new maybe new technology or new ways of thinking i could get i could get going on this for hours so it would be a huge detour from this conversation (laughs) but unfortunately it's business driven it is the market it is the businessmen of this industry that want certain things and and basically the sacrifice is, is that you can't get a good riding bike unless you go back 30 or 40 years do you think would that be is that your take on current current bikes that they don't ride as well as bikes from 30 years ago in terms of just how Okay, you have to break down the word ride in so many different pieces. Yeah. In order to answer that question honestly. So, when I talk about true ride, I mean what the road feels back, what the what the ground effect and the feeling coming and you're experiencing from the road. You can't duplicate that without the older older bikes that were been around for a hundred years. Now, when I when if I'm talking about shifting and gearing and and clip in and index and all those the other things, that's a different that's a different definition of ride. That is only improved. Technology has only improved that for many uh, that are getting introduced to the sport. For us that that know how to ride a bike from a history perspective and characteristics of riding the original bikes from the 70s and 80s and before who's going to know what that rides like who's going to know what that feels like off-road and gravel wise no one okay so i i would predict that the next generation of gravel bikes is going to have you know it's going to have suspension and the next generation of those bikes is going to basically be what the mountain bike was in in 1979 and do you feel like 
we are often so you you in a way we're be we're told what kind of bike should be suited to what type of terrain. And it's interesting you mentioned Laroica then. So I've ridden Laroica in Italy, which is for the listener the sort of vintage bike ride in Tuscany where you have to ride a bike but before nineteen ninety. Um, and it's on the gravel roads. I think, James, you've done very similar sort of events as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you're yeah. often, I mean, I, personally, when I rode La Roica, I did it on a giant superstar, I believe, that was 1986 and had 19mm tubs on and, and rim brakes. And you're taught now that that's not a bike that you should be taking anywhere near off-road. But 120 kilometers later, I was in one piece. I'd made it back to the hotel. I was fine. How was the headset, though? It was absolutely. It was one of the. I think I lucked out because it was perfect. Even the, even the gear shifting was fine. Which, as Tom said, is one of the big advancements we've had is with the index gearing. But yeah. even that worked for me. So <laughs> it's funny how we're, we're told. You know, you can't. You can't do that with that bike. You need this bike. But you don't really. No, and that's the thing is is I want to shift gears really fast to uh, to to the mountain bike racing years of of, uh, of Richie because because people don't realize that I could see I could see the talent inherent in a true off road rider before anyone could because you had to ride a road bike off road or a cross bike before you could really know what you were doing on a mountain bike. And so Team Team Richie dominated in the late 80s, early 90s. And then because I was only hiring people like Frishy and cross racers and people that knew how to ride a bike before suspension. And, and basically what riding any kind of a bike, especially a, what you would call, you know, a, a 70s bike or, or earlier primitive bike, is you had to rot, you had to know how to not have a flat. You had to know the limit of your bike in a in a way that you would not break certain things. And 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 now you can just smash and bash and, and ride them without any care. And you can end up in somewhat of a together place at the end of it, which is wonderful, but it also doesn't teach you the skills of riding. Yeah, I remember this kind of almost a a backwards reverse epiphany when I first got a bike with front suspension and then eventually got an enduro bike, an old, um, it was a specialized, um, yeah, specialized enduro. So it was a full sus. And it kind of just destroyed the fun of mountain biking for me. And I lamented not having my original, slightly too big, uh, rigid Marin steel bike because all of those trails that were really exciting and quite taxing and you'd fall off and you'd break things or you wouldn't if, if you're better they suddenly you just pointed it downhill and off it went and it was almost too easy and it kind of killed it and i've i've really liked that about gravel bikes i think coming out of mountain biking not having ridden mountain bikes for ages but last time being full sus and then going back off off road and suddenly it's like a gravel bike is kind of like a really rubbish modern mountain bike which therefore makes even the most more basic terrain, really, really exciting, and like you say, really testing. It teaches you something. If you were if you were trying to race in a budget, which I was, I was the, I was the David in a world of Goliaths when it came to racing. No one had a smaller company, and no one had better results. The only way I could win in that scenario was to choose better riders 
and to give them better equipment. And I had a window at that moment in time before the world got grown up really fast. And I had a window that I, that I drove the biggest, baddest team into. And, and they were, they were, they appreciated it. They, they were riding for me for reasons that weren't only paychecks and they were, they were enjoying the success of it. And that was, and that was a really unique moment in time. I, I, you know, a lot of people have asked me over the years, you know, what, what are the, what was the most momentous time, whatever in my life. And I have many of them, but being at the right place at the right time doesn't have anything to do with me. It just happens, you know, and I was prepared, like I said, with, with the skill set and the abilities to make components at the same time of making custom frames. And then I was also a racer. And so I was riding with my team. I was aware of their situation. I was racing at some levels and I was able to basically acclimate to the, to the needs of a racer in a different way than other teams were. And so when seven, I mean, just to transition. So Mike Neal worked for me in 1985. Mike Neal was my head. I I had just left my relationship with Gary and Charlie. And so the story of Mike Neal is a very interesting story. I was, I was a friend and I raced with him. Went on to become a pro, probably one of the best at the time. 80, end of 83, I left, I left my relationship with Gary and Charlie. Uh, Charlie had already left. It was only Gary left. And I was not really happy with that whole scenario anyway. And, and I was, that was my, Gary Fisher who was selling bikes for you. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So Mike came on. I, um, he lived with me, he lived with my family. He, he was, he was with me for a year and, uh, um, became a really dynamic. He's a good salesman, very good, new, new, the U S market, um, bought him a car, gave him, gave him full, full tank of gas, told him to go help me set up, dealers all across the United States. He came back and, and he announced to me after he worked for me for a year, I've got a job with Seven Eleven to, to, um, to be their coach and I'm going to take it. So my only point was, is that Mike knew what to do from a racer perspective and he knew what to do from a personal involved in the Peloton and involved in the, in the, in the sport at the at the grassroots at the at the entry level he knew the whole picture better than anyone probably in the united states and that's why he was so innovative as the coach that's why he went to a ski shop in borneo and bought andy andy and all the other riders a bunch of clo- warm clothes to wear so that they wouldn't freeze to death going off the gavia that's famous andy andy hampson right wearing his oakley ski bobble yeah. hat yeah. And his goggles. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was basically my, the innovative mindset of an American that was for the first time entering the European side of things in terms of, in terms of a, a coach. Which is famously the European mindset is quite conservative. And even today you look at some of the ways that, you know, famously the French, like a French professional cycling team look at things. And it's considered very almost archaic in some ways compared to, as you're saying, how an American came in and, and approached it in the 80s. And then even though, you know, there was other stuff, but even people like U.S. Postal's mindset around certain things 
was that of a different mindset which helped towards success? Well, Bob Rowe was always known to be a scrappy guy, right? (laughs) Bob Rowe lived in a tent. He was basically homeless. Mike found Bob Rowe and gave gave him a ride. I mean, these kind of things are American kind of things. They're not European type of things. Whether it be mountain bikes and and the Europeans laughing at me and basically my counterparts in the racing world and saying, Richie, what are you doing? You're throwing away your career and all the things you built for this stupid looking bike. Don't do this. <laughs> Which is a literal exactly what happened to me. And or Mike and others like Greg that came along that basically showed the way they're very, 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 you know, unconventional ways of entering things. And I would say that going circling back to the starting of this conversation, that was Silicon Valley before it was called Silicon Valley. The people that I was in, in relationship were doing things differently. They were attacking all kinds of problems in the in the in the world of, of microchips and other ways of of creating technology evolutions in a different way. That was my dad. That was Yokes. So of those people and those and, and that group and that scene, what do you think? What are your sort of top top three best inventions for want of a less layman's style word? that came out of that scene that cycling has benefited from? And what do you look at now where you think, we just don't need that? I don't understand. Other than the fact that, you know, as you say, the business heads and the market want us to buy it. I could go down a very long list. I don't know how to pick three out of it to tell you the truth. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I would say it's not really important. The most important thing is, is that, is that people get back to the, pure joy of being on a bike, whether it be my grandchildren or it be a homeless person that has trouble getting by or a Rwandan that doesn't have any idea what a, what a real bike is. It's, it's giving them a tool and helping them understand, understand it from a mechanical sense in its basic way so that they can repair it and keep it going. One of the biggest innovations that I came up with was when I was out of inner tubes in the Swiss Alps and I needed to um, finish my ride that day, I just looked up to the heavens and I said, God, I need an answer. How do you help me with this one? I was off-road. I was on a dirt. I mean, I got a flat because I was I was on a remote area that Yokes had told me to go that basically was a dirt pass. And um, it was like this split second, like everything happens in a split second for me. I don't come up with ideas usually that are based on long drawn out studying programs and being, you know, at a drafting table. They're usually like instantaneous and which is a unique phenomenon that I'm happy to give someone else credit for. But I went and I tied a knot in the inner tube around the hole. I just did an overhand knot. And I put it back in and pumped it up and I got, I got back, you know, and I also broke a spoke once and there was a piece of wire on a, on a cow field 
that I was able to put a bend in the spoke and pass it through the, the, through the spoke hole and push the rim out of shape enough to get the tension up and then, and then bend, the, bend the barbed wire over again. And I was able to ride that to where I was heading. It's like those things aren't, there's, it's, the crazy thing is, is that when I went to Rwanda in 1975, that's what they were doing. They didn't have any resources. They didn't have a bike shop. They didn't have any way of fixing their stuff other than those kind of solutions. And I saw those examples over and over and over. It's really right there in front of you. And most of the tools are already there. So of that tool, and I know I don't want to place too much esteem on it, because as you say, it's the the bike is a kind of key to unlock a door. It's not maybe the door itself. What does your current key look like? What's Tom Ritchie riding when he goes out on his own with no cell phone? Well, it really, as I, as I said, it really doesn't matter what I'm riding. It's, a, it's just that the wheels are turning and my legs are going around and I'm in, in fresh air and whatever elements are out there that I'm, ask, that I'm trying to challenge. I can ride in the snow. I can ride in the mud. I can ride in the dirt. I can ride in just about anything with anything. So it really doesn't matter what the bike is. And I try to give my wife the same experience, whether it be on, you know, a standard road tandem or an off-road tandem. We're two old grandparents riding around all the same stuff that I used to ride around when I was 15 years old. Brilliant. I love that. And, and to me, that's all, that's just part of it. It's just, how do you, the bike, my dad is 91 and he is still riding a bike. And, and, and to him, it's, it's more important than ever. And so to me, when I hit whatever age I'm, I'm allowed to hit in the future, the most important thing is, is that can I still ride a bike? Because that is where my, that is where my solutions are going to come from. That is where my, my, you know, next idea is going to come from. And, and I'm designing and making parts and trying to innovate right now, just so that I can do that into my nineties. Wow. I mean, that talk is making me want to go and ride a bike right this second. And I'm aware as well, Tom, that we have kept you a long, long way past our allotted time. Um, so thank you. But I did wonder if I might be able to ask you one question, which I can't help thinking might be a longer answer than I'm anticipating because I don't really understand physics that well. But a bicycle wheel, a hub, spokes. How is it hanging together? Does a hub <laughs> hang off the spokes off the top of the rim? which I think is what most people would think, kind of my, myself included. Or I've heard that the spokes actually act as pillars. But then how is that possible? Because they don't have solid foundations either end. One goes through a hole, the other literally goes through a hole that has vertical movement. So how does a bike wheel work? I, I'd have to go back and read Yokes what he said, but he, of course, argues it's a pillar. But it can only be a pillar if you have the adequate tension. So if you don't build a, a, a wheel correctly, which, which Yokes probably did the best job explaining the wheel construction and you don't manage it, which Yopes did every day and every weekend and every Wednesday when he, when he taught classes at his house, you don't have the right tension. You will never be a pillar. You can only be a pillar if you have the right tension. So his theory has to do with being a pillar in, in, in a sense only that you're reducing, you're balancing the pulse, pull push force of a pillar 
under a tension load. And I, it's an argument that's a stretch for me to tell you the truth. I am old enough that I could probably argue it, it with yokes, <laughs> but I think, you know, I think, I think this, the thing that is more mystical about the whole bicycle wheel is, is that how do two wheels, what is the balancing moment of a two wheel structure? I love listening to Yopes talk about that more than, more than, you know, the pillar effect of a bicycle wheel. And uh, I think it's a very human thing. <clears throat> and I think something that if you can learn as a three-year-old, like I did, and you can keep doing it as a 90-year-old, like my dad does, there's something magical and mystical about a bicycle. That was Mr. Tom Ritchie, uh, owner of the greatest moustache in professional cycling, or in cycling in general, uh, a man who can spin a great yarn, the inventor of gravel, the godfather of mountain biking. Please add all other names and put them on a postcard. How was that, James? Did you enjoy talking to him? I did, uh, mainly because one of the first pieces of kind of cycling literature I ever really read was um, in my earnest, like, 11-year-old state, getting a book out of the library on mountain biking. And I remember reading about uh, Jobs Brandt and Tom Ritchie and, uh, you know, the likes of Gary Fisher Gary Klein, basically the people that invented mountain biking yeah. off the uh, back of taking old clunkers, like kind of beach cruisers um, down fire roads, which is what, um, you know, we talked about the fact that it started with 10 speed bicycles, tubular tires and going off into the wilderness and effectively riding what, you know, we know to be gravel. Yeah. That segued into Tom making actual frames dedicated to that purpose. And eventually, yeah, the mountain biking thing kind of concurrently sprung up and that started on beach cruisers, like those kind of Schwinn style curvy frame balloon tired numbers. Um, and they just pretty much take the brakes off a lot of the time as well and just like go down these incredible trails in the mountains. So a bit of a hero of mine and didn't disappoint. I could listen to him all day. He's got such a wonderful voice. I really enjoy it. I'd like him to read me some things. Maybe he could read emails for me. <laughs> That'd be nice. He could be on your sat nav. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'd instead like Tom Richard was sat now, please. Instead of Joanna Lumley. Um, <laughs> but we were thinking, so you're speaking to Tom Ritchie, got us really thinking about riding off-road and gravel and mountain biking. And we were thinking, what was your first experience? What was our first experience of riding off-road, James? Do you remember the first time you ventured from tarmac to gravel? to a single track to fire road. Well, as my mother is keen on reminding me, um, there was a time where I took my own stabilizers off and went down a grassy slope. Now I don't know what I was doing out with a with a box hammer, uh, not a box hammer, box spanner, yeah. <laughs> box hammer. What was that uh, out in the wilds of uh, the Portsmouth Common? But um, I do know the hill she's talking about. Apparently, it did happen. So maybe that was my first uh, adjunct onto um, off roading. But in terms of mountain biking. It was just kind of always what you did, I think, because we had, I didn't have a racing bike until I was like 20 odd, 21. It was always mountain bikes. And so you had something that you could ride anywhere. And we were often going out to QE Park, if anyone knows that, which is just on the edge of the Downs and just riding around um, little trails and that. And that eventually segued into me doing, I did a couple of big races once upon oh, a time, yeah. the Meg Avalanche, the Alp Douai and um, the Mountain of Hell both of which start on glaciers. So you effectively are riding on the snow. So you have your little gridded position. The helicopter comes over and films everyone. Everyone's like, yeah. And then everyone sets off and you get about 10 metres before the first person falls off. And so you just all pile up like like 
bowling balls and pins down the bottom of the mountain and it's just fantastically funny watching people myself included because i fell off trying to find their bike <laughs> and grab i saw someone pick up because it's quite you know specialized at the time whatever their demo bike was i think it's called quite a ubiquitous bike it's two people fighting over the same bike no that's my bike no that's my bike um nico Valuz was uh there he was big mountain bike champion of the year i was there i'm pretty sure it's him and he came off at 100 uh, 110 kilometers an hour at the bottom oh. into a rock and broke his arm. Something like that. I'm sure it was Nico, but someone had a really bad spill because you can get incredibly fast on snow because of um, you don't have such rolling resistance. Anyway, I digress. Uh, I'm not really sure when my first kind of mountain biking type thing was. It's just always been, so I'm glad it's now come back into my life through gravel. Good. Um, how about you, mate? When because you've always been a roadie up until oh, recently. Yeah. So. I hadn't, the first time I rode off road on gravel was my first ever press trip while working for cyclists four years, basically four years ago, almost to the day. So when I grew up, I was a like BMXer and a skater. And then when I got into like riding actual bicycles, it was always just a road bike. And then I remember first press trip, like bright, you know, wide eyed, fresh faced new employee our former colleague Stu turning around and going, Joe, would you like to go to the Brooklyn's Museum, Mercedes World, uh, because Canyon are releasing their in-flight cross bike. And I was like, absolutely, that'll be amazing. Get me there. So I turned up, didn't have SPDs, just had my normal road pedals with me, normal road shoes. Uh, didn't know what to expect. Got there, Canyon were like, cool. They'd brought over the guy called Julian Bifang, who helped develop the bike. Um, and his race stuff like Cape Epic, so he's like a really he was a really tidy rider, really handy. Yeah. And they were like, we're gonna do a fifty k loop of just some sort of off road stuff in Surrey. Uh, it's gonna be pretty simple, nothing too mad. Um, in fifty k, I crashed five times. No, <laughs> nice. Probably was that like five times more than you've probably crashed on a road bike in years. I so first five k. Basically, the, we did a bit of like on road. Then we did this like off road climb that was like just like a car park gravel. So it was absolutely fine. And I was like, oh, this is all right. Then we went on to basically single track through this like heather field. Um, and I had sort of just lost concentration, hit a tree stump, came off, crashed three or four more times. <laughs> um, but by this point, I was like, oh, you know what? I keep crashing. It doesn't really matter. I, you know, at first I was embarrassed. By this point, it was a bit of a novelty. And I was like, the, 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 the joker always coming off. You're the guy. Until literally the last thing of the entire ride, we could basically see the pub that we were going to finish in. And it was like a sandy descent, like they have in that. What's that cyclocross race? Uh, Coxsider. Coxsider? Yeah, Zonda. Uh, and it's basically you just descend through a sand pit. And that Julian B fan guy turned to me and went, look, have you never ridden sand before? And I was like, no, I'm a bit nervous. And he's like, well, my only suggestion, he said, if you just hit it as hard as you can and keep pedaling, you'll get through. You'll be fine. And I went, all right, that's fine. First few people went through, got through. I was like, okay, tore it down this descent and I'm going great guns. And as I hit the sand, I just stopped pedaling. <laughs> and then the next thing I know, I've gone over the handlebars, landed on my head, rolled four or five times, the bike's bouncing up and down. I hear like an audible <gasps> from all of the other people on the trip. <laughs> and then, but I literally just jumped straight back up onto my feet, grab the bike, shoulder it, run to the non bit of sand, just jump back on and ride off as if nothing had happened. Um, 
and then yeah, that was my first experience. And I had a fish and chips afterwards wow. to celebrate coming off five times. That sounds like a that sounds like a lovely day. You just reminded me of an awful story from a press trip. Um, and press trips, by the way, because I know we probably mentioned this sort of stuff quite a lot, and people is like, I don't even know what that means. Um, as in going somewhere for like the launch of a new product. And back in the old days where there was actually money in bicycles, because there ain't no money these days, as they say, if you want to make a million pounds in bicycles, you start with two. So we used to go to some far-flung places. It was pretty amazing. And I went to Wyoming um, in the States, and there was a big press trip with Mavic, and they just released a, an all-road wheel. So a bit wider, and they'd done a tyre system to go with it. Everyone was super hyped to go um, to go riding the next day, a lot of American journos. And this one guy, Patrick, lovely bloke from uh, a website, which is his, called redkiteprayer.com. Um, he was really out and he was talking about how, yeah, just how brilliant the riding would be and stuff. He'd been out there before. First thing, we go down, we get, you know, we go to the start of this ride, it's gravel, we go down the first turn. Patrick's riding, a bit like you, road pedals, um, Mavic ones, which basically have been sharpened like knives. I don't know why, who designed them, but that is, that's that type of pedal. And he washed out on this gravelly corner, unclipped, and then the bike landed on him and the pedal went into his calf muscle and he had to have four internal stitches and the rest. And he spent the rest of the trip hobbling around the hotel in scrubs. And I felt so sorry for him, partly because it was a horrendous injury, but he was just like so pumped to be, like we all were, to be there. And it was just, you know, within literal minutes of the first ride. Yeah. Um, so poor bloke, but you know, I've seen him since. He's back on a bike. He judges at um, judges at NABS. If anyone um, ever sees him, uh, which is the North American Handmade Bike Show, uh, which I believe, along with Bespoked in Bristol, will be back uh, this year for some. You know, oh, that was a you know that was a ten year you know a real uh, a real aside just to end on there. We've gone for gone full circle. Back to the hand-built stuff. Yeah, okay, well, on that very sharp note, let's end this podcast. So, end part two of this podcast, I should say. Uh, if you liked these episodes with Tom Ritchie, make sure you let us know. Leave us a, a like, a review, a comment on wherever you get your podcast from. And also, of course, the main thing is to share it with all of your cycling buddies so that they can also listen to it. Because um, that would just really boost James and I's egos. Um, but until then, James, we'll probably see each other in a couple of weeks' time. Um, no, we we'll see each other tomorrow. Oh, yeah, actually, we will see each other tomorrow. I'll see you Way. tomorrow, James. Hey. IRL. Right, oh. on that note, mate, yeah, you know, go off and uh, do whatever you need to do to spruce yourself up. Have a shave. See you later. Laters.